Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Vagina, where we shame us thoughts and feelings around all things sex, gynecology, and female body judgment. We share honestly about our experiences, so you can do the same, leading us all to better health, better sex, and better lives. I'm Mika Simmons, and today on this very special episode of The Happy Vagina, I am joined by sisters Hedier and Hasty, who together created the intimate skincare brand Diodoc. Hedier and Hasty, would you like to tell the listeners just a little bit about who you are? Hedier, maybe we'll start with you. First of all, we're so excited to join your podcast. We're big fans. And my background is that I'm a medical doctor and I co-founded Theodoc together with my sister Hasty. And I am Hasty and I'm six years younger than Hedier and I'm... um, I actually went to business school and that was when we started Diodoc. So we founded Diodoc 2014. So is it six years now? Yes. Time flies when you have fun. And how was it when you started it? How was the response? So if you ask our parents, because we are Persians, uh, so they thought obviously we were crazy for wanting to do this. And uh, actually a lot of people around us also thought we were crazy because, you know, Hedje is a doctor and I went to uh, one of the best business schools in Sweden. So they were like, why don't you just, you know, continue and working with your normal jobs? Yeah. And, and our dad was like, what about your pensions? You're not getting any pensions. You're going to get, uh, you're going to end up on social welfare. You're crazy. And I know like my colleagues from the hospital, they were like, okay, you lost it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, well, you have made great strides within the female healthcare world. And you've just mentioned that you're a Persian. And before we talk about your thoughts and feelings around what's going on with the gender health gap and female intimate care, I think we do need to touch on the fact that you began your lives as refugees, or Heyda, you did. You left Iran during the Iran-Iraq war with your parents. And then, Hasti, you, you were born in Sweden, I believe. But perhaps we can just go back to, to, to the beginning a little, because I feel your story is so powerful that you have become these inspirational leading force women even though your start to life was uh, challenging and potentially you faced more blocks or struggles than other women may have done. The Iran war began, this particular war, during 1980, but your family left Iran in 1987. And I just wondered, what was the thing that happened that made you leave? So basically, um, you know, there were one million people dying uh, from both the Iranian side and the Iraqi side. 
And my dad was a teacher, so they, and he was working for the government, so to say, and they needed people, more people in the war. So they sent him to um, one week of training. And that's when my parents were like, okay, we need to leave now. So to a certain extent, your father refused to to go to war and, and, and to fight, which in, in some narrow-minded um, thought processes, people may say is kind of being a deserter. I personally believe that um, he made an excellent choice to not put himself in that position. But did you have any, did he have any negative um, feedback from those around him? My my dad's family, all of them are still in Iran. And they were also like, you're crazy. Why are you going to leave your own country and become refugees? Uh, like be- being a refugee was not anything nice. Um, but my mom was also political active. And uh, she uh, was against the regime. And she didn't want... Uh, me to grow up in in an Islamic republic. And how was she politically active when her, during her time in Iran? What did that look like for her? So she was also a teacher and um, she had a lot of, you know, ideas and uh, they actually expelled her from from working. So she couldn't work yeah. because her ideas were, was against the Islamic republic ideas. And just to give like an example uh, is that um, uh, in Islam, you become a woman from the age of nine, uh, which means that you have to cover your hair. And uh, our mom, she said to her children in school, "In, in this classroom, you're like my children. In this classroom, I don't want you to put your headscarf on. Please take it off. And that was when one of the other teachers, you know, gave her in like, oh, she she thinks differently. And it had become like Nazi Germany, you know, Mm. neighbors and colleagues, they were giving each other in, in order to Get promotions. Exactly. Wow. So your mother was incredibly brave. I mean, in a regime like that, I guess to be a political activist, all you need to do is have a voice that's in opposition. Hasti, you weren't born when your parents leave, but Heda, you were three years old, you told me. Is that right? Yes. So I was three years old and my parents, uh, they uh, sold everything they owned in order to pay a smuggler to help us and leave Iran. And I think that's just that thing is so brave to sell everything you own. Um, and my first memories in life is uh, is basically this um, when the police takes us in Belgium uh, was the first time. And then I also remember when we came to Sweden, when the police uh, took us to prison because we were there illegally. Mm-hmm. So you flew during that period. Many Iranians went to, to Turkey and, and went on on foot. So they went along the, the mountain passes. So were your family some of the migrants who left on foot to get to Turkey? No, we didn't. I need to. Was it by bus? It was by bus. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Hast is filling in. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I wasn't born, obviously, but I. Uh, this is what uh, our parents yeah. has told us. Do you remember the bus journey, Hader? No, I just remember at the airport in Brussels when the police took us and they had like a small prison in the airport. 
And I just remember being so scared and seeing other people around me crying. And, um, you know, the police, if you wanted to go to the bathroom, the police came with you. And I think it was also this feeling of uncertainty that I felt from my parents. And mm. so that's what I remember. At that age, there's uh, a lot of evidence to show that we don't really yet understand what trust is we're still in the bubble the energetic and nervous system bubble of our parents so to we we, we assess everything via the safety of the the energetic kind of yeah. ongoing womb of our parents so it must have been terrifying for yeah you to... and the crazy thing is that if i close my eyes now i can see that situation so clear mm. it's, mm. it's really mm. Yeah. And when you arrived in Sweden, were you taken to a, a refugee reception center? Yeah, I think it was like a prison first. And then uh, when, when my parents asked for asylum, then uh, they transported us to refugee center. Wow, gosh. Amazing to be put into a prison at such a young age. It must have had such a deep effect on your on your nervous system and your, your will to survive, which... I think is what's made you so strong and, and front-footed in terms of making change today. What were your earliest memories of Sweden once you got through this a terrible period and, and found and were accepted into the country? What are your earliest memories? I remember the first day at daycare and I remember I spoke uh, Farsi with everyone and I was so disappointed when they didn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> uh, that's my first memory also but luckily like when you're a child you don't you don't you adapt and you're kind of happy anyways and I think I learned the language uh, very fast and I was a happy child and you don't know that you grow up poorly like that you're poor you, you're just playing and you're happy. Mm, so you don't remember feeling, were you, do you remember feeling displaced or was there any shaming that went on for being a refugee? Or do you feel that you were so cocooned in, in your child self that you didn't notice? I think I started to notice that I was different is when I got older, like um, 13, 14, like everybody had cars but we didn't have a car or when my friends went to vacation but we never went to vacation and like I think when I when I grew older that's when I started to notice the differences and wouldn't you say Hasti also for you I think it it uh I think I understood it earlier and for me it was more the things like the food we ate it was different. The way I looked was different. You know, I wasn't blonde and blue eyed. And I noticed that my name was different and, you know, people had problems pronouncing it. So I think like when I started school, like eh, when I was seven, first grade, that's mm -hmm. when I started noticing that, geez, and, I'm different. And what were the traditional foods that you were eating? So we were having a lot of, uh, uh, the standard thing is to have saffron rice, but a lot of, you know, lamb stews, a lot of different spices. Whereas in Sweden, when I went to my friends, they had uh, uh, spaghetti and meatballs. And that mm. was it. I grew up in a family that was very bohemian and, and we ate lentils long before lentils were ever fashionable. And, um, and I remember 
for me that the impact of being different was quite acute and, and potentially because we got te- I well I remember being teased for it at school my mother who was a very strong feminist and very hippie in her choices in life and I went to a school that was quite conservative uh, I don't mean political party conservative but conservative in its values and no one everyone else was having fish fingers while mm-hmm. I was having mental stew and it, it it really shaped my sense of self and my sense of otherness that I somehow didn't really fit in and I think that can be a blessing and a curse I definitely agree and I I really I understand what you mean when you say that mm. but I think like for me I didn't understand it was a blessing until like recently that being different is good and being different. Like I think both Hasse and I, we just try to be Swedish in so many ways and like hide our heritage. Whereas now we're proud to be Persians. We're proud of the Asian Persian history and the poetry and everything. So it's, um, Mm. we embrace it more. Definitely. Rather Mm -hmm. than, as Hedja said, we try to hide the fact that we came from, you know, a different uh, country and we had a different background. So we also try to eat, you know, the Swedish meatballs and the food and, you know, just try to have the fish fingers, as you mentioned as well. I mean, let's, I, you know, Swedish meatballs are no bad things. So it sounds like it made you more well-rounded. Heidi, you just said that you only recently have started to celebrate, and perhaps this is true of both of you. Was there something significant that happened that, that for you personally? I mean, I think the world outlook is changing in terms of difference and we're in a period of time when uniqueness and individuality is being really celebrated and forced forward I think people are no longer prepared to accept that we are all supposed to fit into categories and you know these uh, stereotypical groups and people are really fighting for freedom but was there something is it that is it the movement that's going on or was there something specific specifically personal to you that changed your view of your otherness I think I just matured (laughs) (laughs) no but you know you um, when you get older you start accepting yourself in a different way and uh, just learning about the Persian history and learning about the richness of the culture and so you feel proud of your heritage Mm -hmm. and also see like when we go back to Iran to see how beautiful the country is, to see how amazing the the people are and how they behave towards each other and the food and everything. So I think it's uh, several factors. Just coming back to you mentioning not having vacations when you were small and that your family didn't own a car, which played into your difference. Your parents were first generation immigrants. And I think often it is harder for them than children. As, as you've noted, you, you you know, you were you were children. There's a level of acceptance and you got to learn the Swedish language from a young age, which means it's imbibed in your being in a very different way. Many, many First generation immigrants also find that, for example, the degrees or the education that they had in their homeland is not transferable to new countries. I just wondered if your how your parents coped. How did they set up life for you? So when they moved to Sweden, 
it took a while for them to understand, okay, we need to stay here because they thought they were going back. They thought the war would end. They thought the regime would change. Uh, so they they focused on, you know, teaching us Farsi and so we could go back. But the regime continued and it was no good way for them to go back. So my parents, they started to learn Swedish, obviously, and they they needed to, uh, is it called complete their grades from Iran? And they started the university, both of them. Uh, so my wow. mom started business school and my dad uh, went into physiologies and he ended up getting his PhD and became an associate professor at the University of Stockholm. Wow. Yeah, so they've been working really, 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 really hard. And was the education in Sweden at that time, is it still now, free? Were they able were they able to access that as, as first-generation immigrants? Was it Were they supported by Sweden? Yes, they were. Mm. Uh, so everything that they uh, did, it was free to attend, and it still is in Sweden. Mm. Um, I went to business school completely for free. And actually, wow. the government pays you to go mm. to school. Uh, so like when I went, uh, 300 pounds is, you know, given for free. And then you can like take a student loan. And that's what my parents did as well. Yeah. So were, yeah. your, were your parents paid to study when they arrived in the country? Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. What impact does that have on refugees coming to Sweden today? I would imagine that as a country, you must be very sought after. Yeah, yes. we are. Mm. Uh, we are. I mean, Sweden is mm. definitely <laughs> a, a, mm. a country. And I think we see that today and uh, that we see a lot of people from Syria, Afghanistan. Mm. Everyone wants to come to Sweden because we have such a good reputation. And I think uh, people are aware of the fact that the government really, you know, takes care of you in the mm. best mm. way possible. Yeah. And is Swedish policy on refugees good? Do you feel that Sweden is doing enough what it can to help people that need to leave their country before fear for their lives? I mean, looking uh, into statistics and within the European Union, uh, I know Sweden has been one of the most welcoming uh, countries on helping uh, mm. accepting refugees. But there's only so much a small country in the Nordics can do. There is um, some statistics to show that Iranian immigrants in Sweden have a reputation of being really well integrated and educated and using all the things that Sweden has on offer to build a better life. And I would say that you two are definitely a shining example of that. You've been incredibly successful with your with your studies and then with your work. It's not unusual when people get to a new country that they are incredibly focused on survival to make it safe for their families and stable homes. I just wondered, that experience would have been your parents desperately trying to make sure that they created a life for you. But did the sense of being migrants inspire you to work harder at school or, you know, in your in your further education and even now with, with Diodoc? Definitely. Absolutely. I, I think it has shaped and formed us the way we are today. Mm. And coming from a Persian background, education is the most important thing you can achieve. 
Uh, so it's in the culture. You need to study. You need to do something with your life. It's in the DNA. Yeah, that's how vital it mm. really is. And I think from an early age, our parents they they were pretty clear with us. They were telling us that you are refugees. You look different. You have different names. You do need to work. You know, at least twice as hard as uh, your classmates that mm. are Swedish. And in the beginning. I I was like, oh, they're exaggerating and oh, they just want me to uh, try to study more. But as I grew older, I actually, you know, the things they were saying, I was seeing that hmm, it's not just talk, it's actually facts. Mm. So when I when I was in ninth grade, I was 14, 15. Uh, a teacher of mine said that you don't have Swedish as your mother tongue. So you will never, ever in your life be able to have an A in Swedish, for instance. Oh! Hmm. Yes. Tell me you got an A. And uh, No, she refused to give it to me. Oh, I see. I thought you meant that she was suggesting that you wouldn't achieve it because you weren't good enough. She said that you couldn't have it because it wasn't your mother tongue. Exactly, because I'm an immigrant. Mm. So wow. it was it was one, you know, and then I also, um, I was blamed for, uh, rather than, you know, um, saying, wow, you've done an excellent job with your uh, paper. She was like, oh, this Swedish is too good for you. You didn't write this. You, you, you cheated. cheated. Yeah. Where is this teacher? <laughs> I know where she lives. A lot of those things, you know, that kept on happening. And uh, once again, when I was 16, another teacher of mine was like, wow, you don't have an accent for that. I will give you an A, you know, mm. so... And it's then prejudice, essentially, you're being set up to fail. Yeah. Yes. And I had one teacher because I told her I want to be become a doctor. And she was like, no, you will never be able to become a doctor because you're an immigrant, I think. I'm yeah. so sorry. It's but so I painful. showed her, Mika. I showed her. <laughs> you showed her. Yeah. yeah. These, these hurts, these scars, these traumas, if we let them. I think it's a it's a very delicate um, area because actually a scar, a trauma like that, a slight, a negative comment when you're a child can actually spiral you into uh, a very low self-esteem, depression and not doing anything with your life. But if you can overcome it, it can make you work even harder and be even more successful and you know, revenge is is the best uh, form of success. I think sometimes Definitely. I don't mean actual revenge. I mean what you are doing, which is becoming incredibly successful, but also helping others. And this is one of the things that I feel really proud of you for doing, which is that you've identified what I would call as a, a, a sweet spot, that, that an area within feminine hygiene that needs to be looked at. I'm big on vaginas, as you know, and the vulva and the, the entire gynecological area. But um, you, you not only found an area that needed to be looked at, pardon the pun, but also you discovered something that would also do good for the surrounding world. Was those was that in your thoughts? So as immigrants, not only did you have a desire to succeed and prove everyone wrong, did you also want to help others? Yeah, I, I mean, becoming a doctor is about helping other people. Uh, so I think we always had that, or I had it in my DNA. Um, 
but I think like the when we discovered the things that were so wrong within the intimate hygiene space, like our feminist side was like, we need to do something. This is so wrong. And being a doctor, I felt I had a responsibility to do something. We need to speak up and change things because it's basically, um, it's, uh, it's a betrayal. It's a betrayal against women and the products that were on the market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So your desire to work primarily in the women's space, again, was kind of a, a type of, I'm using this word lightly, but revenge in terms of the fact that nobody was doing anything about it and that the products that were on the market were potentially created by men and not really understanding how a, a woman's body works. Exactly. We we have a motto where we say that it takes a vagina to know a vagina and the same goes, obviously, for the vulva. It takes a vulva to know a vulva. Mm. And uh, that's uh, what uh, happened to us. Mm. We were we were not happy with the products that were on the market. And not only were they very ugly and, um, and not very attractive to, you know, have in the bathroom shelf, they actually gave us problems. And that was when we started, uh, you know, doing more research and... You know, we thought that you have hundreds of lotions and potions for your hands, feet, you know, even for the eyes. But the most sensitive skin, there were like one or two brands and they actually were doing harm. So that's where the idea came up to. So did you have some personal difficulties with the products that were actually on the market at the time? Yes. Yes. Both of us. Yeah, both of us had problems. And I also saw this among my patients. Uh, They were having problems. So I had, you know, we have a vulva, which is the outside, and the vagina, which is the inside. And uh, the vagina is self cleansing. You should never wash inside of the vagina. Uh, And the vulva, we have. Uh, sweat glands, the same sweat glands that we have in the armpits are also located in the vulva area. And these two have different pH. In the vagina, we have a pH of 3.5, which is a very acidic environment, almost like a lemon. But the vulva has a pH of 5, which is the pH of our skin on the body. 
So what we saw is that a lot of brands, they make uh, the intimate washes with a pH of 3.5. They make it for the vagina. So it's basically washing yourself with lemon juice. So it creates irritation. It creates uh, infections. And uh, like the OBGYNs here in Sweden call them rat poison. And they're still allowed to be sold at the pharmacies. Mm. One of my favorite products that you've made is the is the oil for the vulva. I absolutely mm. love it. As someone who in my early years struggled with eczema, mm. um, I just think it's a really phenomenal, phenomenal product. Can you tell me a bit about how you developed the products? And do you mean the calming oil or the cleansing oil? The calming oil. It's one of my favorite products too. I can't live without it. Yeah. I'm, I, I, just to be really, you know, honest for everyone, the listeners, because of the vagina being a self-cleaning, I'm, I'm not uh, super keen to use extra products. And then when I spoke to you and you explained to me the difference between the pH and the vagina and the vulva, I've started to experience some of the products and I'm pretty blown away. And I, and I think that women just don't know enough about it. How did you start the journey of developing your range of products? So basically, we needed to educate the market. We needed to educate also the industry because we have been, or it's people just say vagina to everything and people don't know what a vulva is. So we have such a huge, uh, you know, problem in this society and amongst women because they can't name their own female anatomy. Like we have a vulva. It's different from the vagina. So for us, it was a lot about educating women and also educating uh, the industry, basically, that it's two different things. And because Hedje is a medical doctor, um, we were able to, you know, all of the formulation and the products we make, it is with the health of the vulva in focus uh, and also uh, as extra expertise. We actually have a gynecologist with us in the team and she is 75 years old today and she still uh, works um, as a gynecologist. So she sees patients on a regular basis. So together with her experience and knowledge and based on our own needs, we can really create superior formulations that are medically backed. Mm. And I don't know so much about uh, Sweden's um, history with with femcare and in in that space, but what was the reaction to you? How hard has it been to to launch the business and get heard? So, for I mean, in bo- in both areas, in the medical space, have you been taken seriously, and in the business world, have you been taken seriously, or is it still an ongoing fight? It's a very good question, Mika, and I think um, it has been. Um, I mean, the people that understand the concept and have tried our products, they they really understand uh, what major difference we're doing. Whereas, of course, we have had some difficulties launching uh, the products and the concept as well because of the fact that people have said, oh, but the vagina is self-cleansing. These products are just so unnecessary. Mm. So I think the 
biggest uh, obstacle hasn't been the other products on the market. It has actually been the lack of knowledge among mm. women, especially. I find that sort of little tricky to understand in Sweden, being quarter Swedish myself. They're known as the nation of open minded people. Yes. When, but when it comes to vagina and vulva, it's still so taboo. Yes, it's, it's everything is hush hush. And yeah. yeah, this has been a space that nobody has, you know, looked into since the mm. 70s or 80s, as everything has progressed within um, eye care or normal skin care. Mm. But when it comes to no intimate skin nothing has happened since the past 40 years mm. it's so crazy isn't it and I can't tell you how many no's I still get because my podcast and my brand is called the happy vagina do you find that too yes, yes definitely yeah. yeah yeah we we feel the exactly the same way and yeah. it's I'm honestly surprised that we haven't come further uh, than this honestly that the word vagina is so it feels like it has become like a discriminating word or something, mm. but whereas it's just a normal body part of women, yeah. it shouldn't be like this. So for our new tampons that we launched, we wrote in bold letters in gold, <laughs> so we love your vagina. Um, I love that. I think yeah. one of the things that is going on is that that, that actually there is uh, underlying oppression that happens, continue, continues to happen. And I also, I was recently on a radio show and they asked me not, it was a family show and they asked me not to say the word vagina. And they, really? they explained, yeah, but they explained to me that it was a family show and mm. that um, that also they would say to potentially a man that was coming on to talk about campaigning within the male space that they would not be saying the word penis. And I, when they said that, I understood it because if a child mm. is listening to the radio show and it's the first time they've heard the word vagina, it takes away the 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 process for the parent mm. to introduce some of these anatomical they are you know I think while we want the word vagina to be recognized as an anatomical word not a swear word and to be celebrated and shouted from the mm. rooftop I think it's also okay to have a level of protection for families that they get to introduce these ideas around sex and gynecological health and reproduction to their children in their own way however i think that if we don't keep pushing the boundary on it then this particular area female health will continue to be overlooked we've just had a 21 year survey in the uk about the gender health cap and while the results weren't unexpected they were still completely shocking and it sounds to me like sweden has the same issue definitely definitely and it's such an important part of us, of our health, of our health and our well-being. And it's actually the core of being a woman. I mean, well, it's the core of life. Let's let's yeah, let's, let's, let's yes. down, frankly, which is that no one would be here without a vagina, without a womb initially, and, a, and an egg. But exactly, I think and that's I, that's why we feel it's so sad that um, we can't even name our own body parts and I'm quite convinced that if it was if it was the other way around that if men were to wear you know tampons and pads mm. uh, I'm quite sure uh, it wouldn't look the way it does today. Mm. Well one of the other things that came out in our 
21 year survey in the UK was that um, women's issues by doctors are often dismissed because women are seen as the more emotional of, of the genders. And so a woman will go to the doctors and say that they have these symptoms and more often than not, way more often than with a man, it won't be taken seriously. And the doctor automatically, without even knowing it, will think, well, the woman's stressed and therefore it's probably IBS, as an example. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've seen in your clinic, Hayda? Definitely, definitely. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know if it's uh, like, this society that sees women in a different way or I mean it's not something you learn in med school but I guess it's an attitude towards Mm -hmm. that women they just whine but if a man comes to the clinic then it it has to be serious so it's um I I hope that in the future that we are starting a process of it not being like that but um, Mm -hmm. and it starts with us talking about it Mm, and having all over your tampon boxes love your vagina so I do know that you are launching some some tampons which I didn't know when I offered you this podcast I was mostly interested in talking to you about your amazing journey from being refugees into this entrepreneurial groundbreaking helping others business that you've you've set up the tampons what's important about them is that they are cotton because most tampons on the market are actually made out of synthetic processed fibers so it's not cotton and I think a lot of us think it's cotton uh, I'm a medical doctor I thought it was cotton and me the pro- too yeah and the professor of OBGYN that we work with she also thought it was cotton uh, but the thing with these synthetical processed fibers they are more cheap to produce but they shed or they can shed inside of the vagina these fibers and these can cause irritation mm. because of the shedding, but also because it's made out of plastics and synthetic fibers that mm. irritates the vagina. It, so they're easier to make the synthetic materials, but also cost-wise. Is it a leap of faith on your part to be making cotton tampons? I'd imagine that they're more expensive to make. Oh, it's very true. It's definitely more expensive to have just pure 100% organic cotton. Mm. But we we feel this is necessary to to offer to the market. Mm. And it's such a huge difference Mm. uh, wearing conventional tampons uh, versus wearing ours. It's -hmm. it's like day and night. And we think that, I mean, it's so boring to pay money for your menstruation, but it makes such a difference uh, for the vaginal health. Yeah. I think what's important is to have options. Uh, and this mm. is what I was uh, mentioning. So if men were to wear tampons, I, I doubt that they would be uh, made out of these synthetically processed fibers from the beginning. Mm. Well, I think it's really exciting that your tampons are, you know, playing a a, a great part in the revolution in, in the women's health space, mm. not just in terms of looking after our bodies with products that are really well thought out in terms of the materials that you are putting in them but also as you said having love your vagina on the boxes which it sounds to me like Sweden needs 
we, 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 we've moved on a bit, I think, in the UK. We've got, you know, there's some amazing brands over here that I absolutely adore that have, have been shouting, be kinder to your vagina and these things for the last. And of course, my foundation, Lady Garden, has been shouting about these things for the last six years. So um, I feel Sweden's very lucky to have you. The world is very lucky to have you because I don't think there can ever be enough of it. I just wondered in terms of the tampons, because you are, uh, you, you, you launched your business in 2014. Mm. And um, have you seen a difference in, in terms of investment and, and people being willing to back these femcare kind of products because so it really specifically is there a difference because the the tampons are a new product to you Mm. have you seen a difference from when you started in terms of the business world and finance absolutely I think when we started it was um it was hard to convince the market um but we didn't give up and since we started we've seen a lot of other brands coming uh, on the market uh, within the femcare industry. So, so actually, you feel that there's been great strides made in terms of general public knowledge, which you are fighting for, and, and investors are more keen to support something that's so well researched and are backing you better. And the next, the next step for you for the future is uh, regulation. Yeah, but uh, also to be honest, we had. Uh, from the beginning, a lot of people interested in the adoc, but we said no to all investments. We decided that we want to grow organically because then we can let uh, product development be key. Like mm. it, it took us, uh, you know, two years to develop the lubricant, and mm. it is okay because then we know it's a good product rather than having, you know, VC money. Um, you know, in the end, they want their money back and they want mm. a certain um, investment level back. So rather than looking at the ROI or other key figures, we we felt it's better to grow slowly, but we are in control. Mm. And as Hedje mentioned, it takes time to develop mm. good products. So we let it take time. That. Yeah. Amazing. I'm even more inspired by you. I just, one of the things that when I spoke to my friend Philly, who runs mm. Help for Refugees Choose Love, she was saying to me that one of the things that is not celebrated enough with refugees is the success. That actually there is this general attitude that when refugees come to a country, they come and they take and they don't give. And I think you two are shining examples of two people who had that start to life and who have absolutely channeled all of your energy in into making change and being successful and feeding back into your economy and changing women's lives. Do you ever feel guilty for the life that you've had? By comparison to people who are still living either in Iran or just in any war zone today, how do you feel about your success? What do you do to help others in that space? I think both of us feel very grateful and comparing us to like our cousins that are still in Iran, we see the difference. We're so privileged. Uh, their aim is to get married. Our aim is to, you know, revolutionize an entire, you know, category in women's health. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So okay. we, uh, but I don't, I, I, 
we don't feel guilty because uh, we feel that all of like we're really using our potential and mm. uh, mm. uh, because this is an amazing opportunity that we have been given so we really are trying to you know use every part of that um but if i was uh, uh, it's nothing wrong to be a cashier but uh when i was younger i used to work as a cashier you know just extra and if i were still gonna be only a cashier then mm. yes i think i would uh feel guilty because i didn't use my you know full potential and mm. uh, for not using the chance you were given i think we are both aware that we've been given this amazing chance and we need to do something by by being just lucky well I think that also my my family were Irish immigrants my grandmother came over from Ireland and she'd already trained as a nurse and then my mother before she passed away had trained and worked as a, as a nurse and like you've said about giving back to the community as a, as a doctor I feel you've taken it one step further and you're trying to change the psychology of of a nation and I'm I just think it's really amazing what you're doing I've absolutely loved talking to you thank, thank you so you. much for coming on the happy vagina just before we close can you just tell me both of yours favorite thing about working together as sisters I think for me, <laughs> Kendra, do you want to start yeah I, I'll start because I think it's we share the same mission and vision we don't want to see yet another generation of young women growing up without knowing their own female anatomy and like not even and also we don't want to see another generation of young women growing up without knowing what they put inside of their vaginas every month. Like we share this great visions together that is so strong. So a shared vision and yeah. hasty. I would say just the fact to like share the journey. There's mm. no one else I would rather, you know, share the journey with because it is a roller coaster with its ups but mm. also with its downs oh, so yeah. it really really helps to you know have a yeah she's my partner in crime mm. and has been oh, since I love it. 1989 I love it. when I was born <laughs> <laughs> I love it, my partner in crime. These are good crimes, cr cr crimes for humanity. Thank you so much for coming on The Happy Vagina. It's been an absolute honour to speak to you both. I'm Mika Simmons. That was Heda and Hasti Asadi, founders of Dio Doc. I hoped that we continue to work together. So do we. So do we. And also, I would just like to thank you for your great work with The Happy Vagina podcast and, and for shedding light too our vaginas yes. and vulvas and your oh, work with lady gardener foundation it's absolutely amazing. amazing thank you for doing the work you do
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.